0: Where are we in mental health, especially depression, in life science development? I'm Jeff Stewart from Sineos Health Consulting. I'm joined today by two experts in mental health treatment and clinical development from our Therapeutic Strategy and Innovation Group. Andy Meniz is Vice President, and Dr. Alexandria Wise is the Global Head of Therapeutic Strategy and Innovation here at Sineos Health. Mental Health Day, Depression Awareness Month, and the state of mental health clinical development next on the Sineo's Health Podcast. Dr. Alexandria Wise, Andy Meniz, welcome to the Sineo's Health Podcast.
1: Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. So we're talking
0: because October is important for mental health. October 10th is National Mental Health Day, International Mental Health Day. Tell us what's important about October.
2: October really uh, captures what many of us are dedicated to in the scientific research that we conduct every day, which is around treatments and clinical care for individuals experiencing mental illness. Mental illness affects one in five U.S. adults. It is obviously a global issue, and we are happy to be here today to talk about how important the studies are that are being run for mental illness, particularly around depression.
0: And October 10th in particular is World Mental Health Day. What is October?
1: October is actually a depression awareness month. So it's really trying to highlight to people the struggles of depression and making sure that people understand the assets that they have available to them to to seek treatment. One of the hard parts about depression is a lot of people who suffer from it suffer in silence. And this month really is supposed to be about trying to help make sure that people who are loved and cherished realize that there are options out there for them. There is help that's available for them and to get them to get the help that they need.
0: Now, when I went to school, so I'm dating myself, when I was in grad school, this would have been 30 years ago, mental illness treatment was kind of not talked about. That's about the era we were in. And in fact, to get treatment, you had to go through counselors to be able to get to see a doctor. That's the kind of level that things were. Things have changed. It's now not just verboten to talk about the fact that one has depression. It's not quite the same stigma. Is that what you're seeing also bring us up to speed over the last 30 years from when I was in school to where we are today and where we need to go.
2: I absolutely agree, and uh, appreciate you bringing up the changes that we've seen. And some of the changes have accelerated exponentially just in the last few years. But as you said, over the last 30 years, we've seen a major revolution around how people think about mental health and the types of treatments that are becoming available for mental health. We're very fortunate to see mental health being pursued by the biotech and pharmaceutical industry around all types of psychiatric disorders, including major depressive disorders, schizophrenia, generalized anxiety disorder, PTSD, ADHD, so many mental health disorders being pursued. And as you said, it is the acceptance and the decrease in stigmatization that is helping us get to a place where more treatments are becoming available and the clinical access to those treatments Is improving. And just to go back to my earlier point about how in the last few years this has changed even more, what we're seeing is that in the post COVID era, there has been an awakening and an uprising of people wanting to accept and open up and talk about mental health more than ever before, which I think is only beneficial to the improvement of mental health treatments and access for the population.
1: Yeah. And Alex, that is so true. And I agree with you so much. And you think about the isolation that people went through during the pandemic. And fortunately, we do live in an era now with lots of social media and celebrities who are willing to talk about what they're suffering from, making it okay for other people to talk about it. When you, you go through those levels of isolation, they can exacerbate what you're feeling and what you're suffering through. And it really did sort of increase awareness of things. The other side effect there, too, was all the vaccine trials that were going on there. I think there's a whole generation that has an understanding of clinical trials and experimental medicine and what we're trying to do that simply didn't exist before the pandemic.
0: I've seen in other therapeutic areas, there are times when there are simply no drugs in development, especially, say, in large pharma and the biotechs are the ones that lead the way. And then all of a sudden, everything is in field. And is suddenly wanted by large pharma. from my MA days. You would see these waves going on. Stop me if I'm wrong, but my belief on how mental health became more of a thing for pharma started with the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, by making mental health more of a must-cover field. Medicare, Medicaid tends to cover things that they wouldn't, perhaps, in other therapeutic areas and commercial plans are forced and tend to be more open there, has opened up the ability for pharma companies to be interested in mental health. And at the same time, that's one kind of factor I see for how things are getting better, have gotten better. And then the other factor I do tend to see is that it's hard to get a clinical trial done. So that's the other side of it. The counterbalance is that placebos do quite well in a lot of mental health conditions, or drugs don't do very well in mental health conditions. So it's hard to get things past clinical trials. Start with my priors. Do I understand the situation at least reasonably well about what's going on with mental health and disease? Correct me if I'm wrong, and then let's go from there.
1: I'm going to add one more caveat in there. We actually experienced not long ago big pharma simply walking away from mental health they stopped developing the drugs. And quite honestly, everyone, I think initially was in a panic about what that actually meant for those who suffered from it. But in reality, it was probably the best thing that's ever happened because it shifted development from being solely done by big pharma to being biotechs who are far more risk tolerant. They're willing to take chances that big pharma wouldn't. And what you see is now a cycle. The small biotechs go out there, they develop the drugs, they take chances on science that's more cutting edge, that has a higher likelihood of failure. And then their products either get acquired or the entire company gets acquired by big pharma, getting it into our hands because the access to the sellers and, and the understanding of how to actually make these prescriptions available to people. So it's kind of a best of both worlds where we have the biotechs who are willing to take the risks and the farmers who are really putting these products out there for us.
2: It's such a good point, Andy. And going back to why and how, that whole notion of did managed care help us get to a point where it was a much better prospect for pharma and biotech to pursue mental health treatments, there has been a shift in how managed care covers and handles behavioral health, mental health. In fact, those terms are starting to go away and are now being shifted to considering and viewing mental health conditions as a medical condition. And that shift has helped to improve the progress of clinical trials because when you think of mental health and behavioral health as something that has to be compensated for or something that is paid for differently from medical conditions, you automatically then give patients, physicians, the population a reason to access care differently. When in fact, we now and are realizing and understanding better as a broader community that when we treat mental health like a medical condition, then we give people the option for improvements in the same way a medical condition would have been treated 10, 20, 30 years ago.
0: So we have mental health being treated as a medical condition. We have as Andy said, biotechs are willing to take chances on the science in ways that perhaps more staid institutions were unable to or unwilling to or their money people were unable to or unwilling to. Where are we now then? What is the state of the state for mental health probably and I think you want to focus on depression just given the topic,
2: but I'll let you choose. Depression is in the top 5 clinical trial indications being pursued as of 2023, which says quite a bit for what we're talking about today, about mental health acceptance, the stigmatization lowering, and biotech and pharma pursuing and embracing depression as a top indication for pursuit.
0: And is that driven by mechanism of action at this point?
2: Definitely, we're seeing a big uptick in interest in depression because of the types of treatments that have become available. And Andy actually knows quite a bit about this area.
1: Yeah, I was going to say it's wild because you know, as we sit there and we look at the innovation that's going on, we've really sort of reverted to looking at compounds that are fundamentally different than anything we've done before. Everyone's heard about the psychedelic revolution. We're seeing psychedelics and other forms of hallucinogens. Anything with a dissociative property is actively being looked at now as a potential be it a ketamine or an MDMA or a psilocybin. This is a trend that we're seeing a lot of investment in we sort of laugh and refer to it as Burning Man beats Silicon Valley because you have people who are taking these compounds that used to be thought of more on the fringe and realizing the huge therapeutic value that they can bring towards treating mental health. And they've got people interested in investing in ways that we just haven't seen in years. People are excited at the idea of the potential of these compounds because what they really represent is a completely new way of thinking of the disease. We can sit there and talk about the improvements that we've made over depression over the last few decades, but they've been small increases here and there. We haven't introduced a new class of antidepressant in quite some time. And these psychedelics and enactogens and, and other forms of hallucinogens really represent a major step forward in how we think about things and how we approach it and can really offer us a bright future for maybe something different. When we look back at antidepressants, we know only about a third of patients actually respond to their first-line treatment. So we've got the compounds out there. They just don't necessarily work all that great. And there's so much unmet need here. Having a new approach is actually really exciting.
2: I completely agree. And I'd love to add another category of focus in depression, which is digital therapeutics. So along with the AI that we've seen evolve in a number of different ways, AI is impacting the types of treatments that will be available to patients with depression through what is called digital therapeutics. And that is a solution that is available on a patient's phone through an app. And it delivers a treatment through the phone through a series of steps that they will be taken through that is empirically validated, just like any other clinical trial out there. And these digital therapeutics are being targeted for A number of mental health disorders, either on its own or in combination with other types of treatments that Andy and you have just described.
0: The digital therapeutics, I would refer the listeners to the recent episodes that we've had on digital therapeutics in the mental health space where they're delivering essentially a behavioral modification or a behavioral intervention. So for more about digital therapeutics,
1: check those out. We're so glad that Alex brought that up because, you know, one of the other issues that we always have when we're talking about mental health, especially, but healthcare in general is the divide that exists. It's not evenly distributed, the access that people have to medicine, especially when you're looking at things like rural versus urban populations, the availability of qualified mental health professionals in rural communities is a fraction of what's actually needed. And these digital therapeutics are such an amazing advancement in offering real solutions to people who may simply not have access to other solutions. So there's there's a lot of enthusiasm there too, because it really does help to more diversely deliver solutions to those people who are suffering.
0: You know, maybe it's easier for depression, I suspect it is, to get treatments to find a psychiatrist or some mental health provider, even if it's just a primary care physician that's willing to prescribe something. That doesn't seem to be the case for more serious mental health conditions. Wondering if you have a point of view, Alex and Andy, on where access is going. It's great that we're making new drugs. It's great that we have some drugs For psychosis, that can last two weeks, a month, two months, a half year. That's fantastic, but it's useless if the patient can't get the prescription or find a psychiatrist.
2: I would agree with you on that. Let's talk about what we're framing up here, and that is the more severe mental illness such as schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, treatment refractory or treatment resistant, major depression, even some of the anxiety disorders fall into this category that you're talking about, which is that it can seem like it's something that doesn't need additional care other than something that general practitioner might pick up on quickly. But as you say, if there's psychosis, if there's hallucinations or if there's extreme paranoia, those are the types of symptoms that might not make it through to a more specialized mental health care provider. And it can be very difficult to access. The, the fortunate thing is that we have plenty of clinical trials out there for these indications. And as you said, there seems to be a need for more medical education and perhaps a specific commercialization type plan made so that people who have these illnesses Can get the access that's needed to that type of care.
0: So I'll be specific. If you have a patient in your family or you yourself has a serious mental health condition, psychosis is one of the ones that you've mentioned there, and you can't get in to see a psychiatrist, clinical trials are an option without having a psychiatrist yet?
2: Yes, that's correct. So if someone is looking for a treatment or an option, they can look for clinical trials online. That are available locally to them in these particular indications. That's correct.
1: And Alex, Alex, too. The nice part is, is that there are a lot of trials out there that'll let you be diagnosed as part of the clinical trials. So you'll see advertisements out there for clinical trials on the web, so forth. They're giving you indications for, you know, hey, does this sound like you? And as you're saying, they're going, wow, that really fits what I'm going through, or this is what I can see my son or whoever it is going through. And it gives you that access to get in there and get the diagnoses, because sometimes getting the diagnoses can be a real problem. You know, if you don't have access, no one may have labeled it yet. You know you're having problems. No one's told you it's schizophrenia yet. And these trials can actually help with that as well because they can help you to get that right diagnosis. So there is a path forward. Even if you don't end up in the clinical trial, you may at least have a label to put onto this to go back to a primary care physician and say, listen, this is what they're telling me I have. What do we do? So I know… Because I do it for
0: work, and I suppose that it would be known by many people within our company about how you find clinical trials. I personally just go to clinicaltrials.gov and start looking stuff up. It's not the easiest thing to navigate, though, I have to admit. Normally, you just go to your specialist doctor and say, well, treatments aren't working, therefore, are there any clinical trials? I did that for my own oncology work. That's the normal course of action. Could I have just looked it up myself? Yeah, I could and did. But that's not normal for patients. And they don't, in this situation, the family doesn't have a guide. Is there any suggestions other than you've got to go to clinicaltrials.gov and just start looking stuff up?
2: I would point people towards their local nonprofit organizations that are completely dedicated to helping people find access to care, whether it be through a clinical trial setting or through a hospital or physician. National Alliance for the Mentally Ill, NAMI, is probably one of the key nonprofit organizations dedicated to ensuring access to care for the mental health population. Also, organizations like the Star Coalition, which is fully dedicated to improving access to clinical trials for the mental health population. Those are just two examples, but certainly look within the local community for nonprofits that are working towards giving more access to the mental health population because they are connected to the local sites that are conducting the clinical trials.
0: That's great advice and great help. We've got a couple of places that one can go if you have a family member or you yourself are facing mental health conditions that are beyond what you're getting from treatment. If you can't get to a doctor, there are some options that are outside the norm, looking for clinical trials. And as Andy and Dr. Weiss both said, there are some exciting products in development. And this is just my impression. It's a good time to be looking at clinical trials because there are a lot of old drugs out there and there are some exciting new ones or new uses of old ones like some of the psychedelics that show a lot of promise and are exciting to people in the field. That's my take, but correct me if you think differently, Alex and Andy.
2: I would love to just add a couple more items for people to bear in mind, because we are talking about mental health in general, but also specifically about depression. So for those who aren't aware, within the last year and a half or so, a new suicide and crisis lifeline called 988 is available for people who are in imminent danger of potentially considering or behaving towards suicidal thoughts and to please reach out to a healthcare practitioner, to a family or loved one, if you are having those types of thoughts. There is care for you available, and there are clinical trials with much hope towards helping people who might be considering or thinking about suicide.
0: Okay, I'm going to ask a technical question next, and I've got to be honest. One of my own children would be thrilled to be part of any psychedelic clinical trial that you have. For any condition whatsoever, they just want to make sure they don't get the placebo if you catch my drift. And there is some stigma around psychedelics and some issues around how they're used. And I know from prior work for clients that there can be some fairly extensive barriers to utilization and reimbursement because you've got to watch the patient for quite a while. What's it like to do a clinical trial in psychedelics? What are some of the take home
1: lessons there? You're absolutely right. This is not a go in, pop a pill and walk home trial by any stretch of the imagination whenever we're doing a clinical trial, safety is always the thing we're worried about the most. And these sites actually go out of their way to make sure that the people are secure and that they are safe, that regardless of what's happening there, that they are going to walk out of there just fine. And it includes exactly what you're talking about. Depending upon the product that we're talking about, you could have hallucinogenic effects for two hours, four hours. LSD, they're talking 10 hours. And they don't let you out of the clinic until they know that you're okay. They sit with you. They make sure of it. Whether they're you're getting therapy while you're on the session, or if you're just being observed, the primary goal is always to make sure that you are safe and that you are taken care of. And that when you walk out of that clinic, you're able to walk out of that clinic and be safe. And if that means keeping you longer to make sure that that happens, they will do that as well. Safety is always our primary concern. We're very focused on that. And we recognize that with psychedelics, you have to be even more focused on that. You know There are a lot of people who go to these trials for all the wrong reasons, and we try and make sure that we're only putting the subjects in there for the right reasons. We want to make sure that people really need this and that they can respond to this effectively and that we're actually taking care of these patients and having the appropriate response. So really, these protocols have been designed to keep people safe, to make sure that people are there for all the right reasons, and to make sure that they have a real chance of being impacted by this positively.
2: And these types of studies that we're talking about are tailored towards individuals who are struggling to get their needs met by the current types of treatments that are out there. So in the case of major depressive disorder, many of these studies are around treatment-resistant depression, where an individual cannot get their depression lifted by the antidepressants that are currently on the market So while we talk about the types of studies that are being done and the hallucinatory effects that are associated with psychedelics, these studies are intended to help support the long-term lift of depressive symptoms and other types of mental health disorders that are out there. The last comment I'll make around clinical trials for people who are considering clinical trials is to always remember that informed consent is an ongoing consent process. So if you enter into a trial and you have questions, you should always ask your principal investigator and know that you can discuss your consent on an ongoing basis throughout the trial. We've seen some great results from the participation of patients in trials, and it has helped to open up a variety of options, including understanding what does and doesn't work in clinical trial settings.
0: And let me just say, I've worked with about 300 different projects for about 100 different companies over my years consulting. There is no other class of drugs that I have seen more excitement about about a therapeutic area among the researchers, among the people doing the work in client sites than in psychedelics, in depression. I've seen nothing remotely close and that includes companies that were wildly optimistic about their cancer treatments, their cures for other diseases or vaccines. Nothing has come close in my observation with the excitement that there is in being able to change what's going on with depression. So I think just based on what I see from people who do know what they're talking about and have every reason to be skeptical that it's truly exciting what is either coming out or about to come out or has already come out in this area. So just wanted to underline that. And thank you so much, Alex Wise, Andy Meniz. Thanks for joining me on the Cineos Health Podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: That's all for today's episode of the Cineos Health Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. If you want to talk through a hard decision you're making at your life sciences company, you may email me at podcast at cineoshealth.com. For access to more future-focused, actionable life sciences insights, visit the Cineos Health Insights Hub at insightshub.health. Sineos Health, shortening the distance from lab to life.